Jor. Welcome to the George Sanders Show. Uh, if you couldn't tell by my immaculate pronunciation of the French language, uh, we are doing a special show tying in with my upcoming vacation, Sean. Uh, I'm leaving town in uh, less than two weeks. Woohoo! Yes, I know. America, America waves its flag in uh, happiness. Um, <laughs> uh, and tying in with that, we're going to talk about films from uh, the two countries that I will be visiting. I will be going to France, spending a week in Paris, uh, and then I will be going to Germany uh, and spending some time in Berlin, and then Cuxhaven, which is up northern. Anyway, so we're going to talk about Cook, two films. Cuxhaven? Cuxhaven. K-U-X-H-A-V-E-N. And that pronunciation, because I have a German girlfriend, is correct. <laughs> okay. She drilled it into me. No, never heard of it. Yeah, it's nobody's ever heard of it. I will be spending several weeks in Tacoma, so <laughs> you'll be spending the rest of your miserable I think, life. I think, I think we know who wins here. That's right, um, you and your allergies. Um, so, anywho, we're tying in with uh, my trip, um, and we're going to talk about films from each of those countries. Uh, both of the films happen to be called Lola. Just happened. Just totally, totally randomly. Wild coincidence. We pulled names out of a hat, and it was yeah. Lola. Uh, the first film will be Jacques Demy's film from 1961, his debut film, uh, feature. Yes. Uh, and then uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder's uh, 1981 film, which is at the end of his career. So that's kind of exciting. Um, we will also be complaining about a list of the greatest movies of all time, and then creating our own list to show them how cool we are. Um, we'll be picking our Cinema Central vacation movies and uh, talking about Jacques Demy um, and his entire career because uh, he's got that new box set coming out. And he's awesome. And he's totally awesome. So yeah. um, without further ado, let's hear a clip from his version or his film. They're not, they're not the same movie. Uh, his, ver his film, Lola. <laughs> So most people who know Jacques Demy know him from The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is the film that he made the next year after Lola, starring Catherine Deneuve, and is is uh, a perennial art house hit. Uh, it stars Catherine Deneuve, and it, it's notable for having all of its dialogue sung. It's a weird kind of neorealist musical operetta type thing. And it's awesome. It's awesome. It's great. It's it's 
one of the best movies ever, I think. Not as many people, I think, are, are, are familiar with Demi's other films, and it, whether it's because they've, they've been relatively unavailable, or they're just not, they don't have the big star, or, or what have you. Uh, but Lola, I think, is just as good as Umbrellas of Shorborg, if not the better film. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to rewatch Umbrellas because it's been a while. I've seen it several times. Um, a couple of I saw it once at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, um, which was just absolutely glorious. Um, but yeah, it's been at least ten years since I last saw it. Um, I'm looking forward to revisiting it when that box set comes out. But uh, holy moly, Lola had me gobsmacked. I mean, whew. and it's like you said it. it if you know Demi just from Cherbourg or even from some later stuff, you know, that movie's, you know, one of the first things I think of with that movie is color. You know, it's very colorful and it's, you know, um, and so it's interesting to see this film, which has the very, you know, early 60s French new wave black and white, which is gorgeous, don't get me wrong, but it's something that I would never have expected Jacques Demi to, to work with. Yeah, Jacques Demi is, is not considered part of the new wave. He's like the... Uh... The, the right bank, the left bank. Sure. I get them mixed up. <laughs> There's like the new wave guys who were all working for Kaede Cinema, the, your Rivette, Godard, Truffaut, Romer, and, and Chabrol. And then there are like fellow travelers of the new wave, like Alain René, Agnes Varda, Jacques Demy, who were not really part of that group, but came around at the same time as the, the Kaede directors did. And there's a lot of overlap between them. And, and aesthetically, Lola is, is very much a new wave film. It's got the same cinematographer, uh, Raoul Qatar, who worked on a lot of, of uh, Godard's films. And the score, of course, by Michel Legrand, who also worked with, with Godard a lot. Uh, in the, the black and white style, the kind of handheld, the kind of uh, doomed romanticism of it all, it, it very much feels like it could have been a Godard film or a Truffaut film while still retaining, you know, a uniquely Jacques Demy kind of point of view of the world. Well, I think I read that this, uh, he originally wanted to make this a musical, but then he couldn't get enough funding because, I mean, that's mounting a, a fairly big production. So, um, it, you know, it, it definitely kind of falls into his wheelhouse, um, even though it doesn't have the trappings of some of his, you know, other more vibrant musical films. Why don't we set up what the movie is about? We'll get, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, well, it 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 does at, at times very much feel like a musical, and not just because it, it's got a very recognizable theme that is that is uh, reused as a key theme in the Umbrellas of Schorberg, but it it bears a a relation to another film that came out in 1961, which is Godard's Woman Is a Woman, which is similarly a musical without really being a musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, both are are taking kind of the spirit of the Hollywood musical, the MGM musical, and putting it in in a kind of more uh, neo realist kind of context of of shooting in in actual streets instead of sound stages, and having you know characters you know talk about uh, immoral things like prostitution, unwed mothers, and and stuff like that. But we should talk about the plot of the film. <laughs> Whenever for, you're for, ready, For sir. anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, 
It's uh, it it centers on a, a young man who's kind of uh, drifting through life. He uh, gets fired from a series of jobs. His name is uh, Roland Cassard, and he's very very much a, a new wave antihero kind of guy. Very much. He's so. not he's not a criminal like Jean Paul Bamondo in uh, in Breathless, but he's just kind of uh, a drifting ne'er do well. Yeah, he's he's kind of like opted out of of. Uh, of conventional society, yeah, conventional social expectations. He he has higher ideals, and he doesn't want to you know be tied down by mundane things like working a job that you don't really like. And so he kind of wanders through the town. It's set in Nantes, which is is Demi's hometown. And uh, this is not the only film that's set. In yeah, it's uh, one of the the interesting things about to me is is his films aren't set in Paris like like most of those new wave films. They they're set in Rochefort or or Nantes or uh, uh, Cherbourg. Right. Uh, and as the the film goes along, he meets a number of people, all of whom have various romantic complications going on in their lives. People that they have loved at one time, who have left, or that they love right now, that are leaving. And as as we meet all of these people, uh, Demi weaves this kind of web of this whole community of like a dozen people, all of whose stories intersect and rhyme and repeat with each other in a way that, that ends up just being really beautiful. It's amazing because it could, it could so easily uh, be uh, very you know, conceited and, and, and just, you know, not flow. Um, and like it, the, the bad version of this is crash. Right. Exactly. Um, but this, it, it, I, you know, I wouldn't say it's organic cause it, you know, you have to, you have to take a few leaps of logic to, to, you know, follow with it. But my gosh, it's just the way it works is, is just peaches and cream. It's amazing. I mean, um, halfway through this thing, I, I, when I first, when I, finally like locked in with it. I was enjoying it, but when I finally was like, okay, this is some next level stuff. Um, I was like, this is like a secret science fiction movie because there are all these doppelgangers, you know, and, and like you said, the stories rhyme and, and there'll be, you know, there'll be a line of dialogue that talks about some somebody that someone loved a long time ago and how this person reminds them of them. And then that person that they loved long ago will come back and the whole plot will be kicked into overdrive because of that. And... So once I was on the rhythm of that with these with these um, you know twinning characters because you know Lola um, her real name is Cecile and there's a younger girl named Cecile who to Roland looks just like the Cecile when she was thirteen and it, yeah, it just think, plays out in this like kind of elliptical repetition. That's you, just, you definitely want to read that in in a science fiction way that the the young Cecile is an actual version of the older Cecile right. and, uh, and the young Cecile meets an American sailor who's tall and blonde and she has this like magically romantic time with him, even though he's much older than her and has no, you know, romantic interest in her because ew. Yeah. Um, but he becomes her, uh, kind of masculine ideal. Right. Which is exactly which is, what happened. Which is exactly what happened to, to Lola when she was that same age. Yeah. That, if I'm, if I may be so blunt, blew my mind. Like I was like, I was like this, like when those things started to re reappear and, and those things that, like I said, you know, he teases it out really well. In the beginning, you don't, 
you, you know, you think these people are just going about their lives and you're not sure the, how these things are going to For the whole first hour of the film, it's only 90 minutes long, for the whole first hour, it just seems to be like one thing after another. Right. Right? You're just, you're just kind of getting the sense of this community and getting to know all these individual characters. Right. But once the, the rhymes start clicking into place and you start to see exactly, you know, the pattern that he's, that he's woven, it's, it's uh, a, a magical experience it's really it's, it's really it's cool one of my favorite things in movies is when a director can pull that off and uh you know uh, watching it watching it this time after uh on a last episode we talked about hong sang Soo, and i think hong often gets compared to to eric romer and there are a lot of similarities between between hong's films and and romer's uh but but watching these to me films right after watching the the hong films I, I really think that that to me is more the inspiration for for Hong, just in the way that his characters, you know, rhyme and mm-hmm. repeat, and 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 everything ties together in these kind of unexpectedly elegant ways, is is something that that Jacques Demy did better than anyone ever has. Yeah, I can t- I can definitely see that. You know, like I said in the, pre- the previous episode, I haven't seen enough Hong Sang Soo to be able to. I mean, they're very, Connected, they're but, very different sensibilities. Right. Uh, to me, is is very much a romantic, and he has a, a very musical sensibility. Right. Where it, whereas Hong is more cynical and self deprecating. And right. but yeah, those the way those kind of the repetition comes into play. Um, I can yeah, they both definitely do that, and they do it very 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 well. And like you said, yeah, no, I can't think of anybody that does something as good as as this. And for this to be a first feature, can I also say like. <laughs> I mean, this thing's fully formed, you know, there's no, there's no hesitation here. There's no, you know, missteps or whatever. This is, you know, you could have showed this to me and, and I would have just thought it was, you know, at someone at the height of their powers or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, this thing blew my, blew my socks off. Um, um, there, speaking of new wave stuff, um, and you know, Godard's work, you know, there, there's those very Godardian moments where he'll like, you know, uh, machine gun editing or something that he'll introduce something that's never really been done before or whatever. Um, and this film doesn't really go into anything as, um, you know, radical as something like Godard does, but there are moments, um, for, and I think of the the iconic scene where uh, the young Cecile goes to the uh, fair with the the American sailor or whatever, and uh, he he pulls out the best use of slow motion as they're getting off of you know a little fairground ride or whatever, and it is like, I mean, it's it it when it comes up, it's just like a sock to the stomach, you know, and you're like, fuck, how did what? Oh man. You know, and those tricks and stuff get used all the time. You see slow motion in everything. You know, there's slow motion in Snowpiercer. There's you know all these things, but um, but sometimes someone just does it and they do it at the perfect moment and and for the perfect duration because it doesn't happen very long. It's just like two shots, I think. It's yeah. yeah, and and then it's just and then they go back to what they're doing. It's you know, yeah. It's just it's it's kind of a. A, just a lovely little lyrical moment of of happiness. It's uh, it reminds you of the. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, uh, Jean Vigo's uh, Zero de Conduit. I have not. Where the 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 boys in this in this boarding school have a, a pillow fight, 
and there's all of these pillows and there's like 30 boys hitting each other with these pillows and then there's like feathers flying through the air and then goes into slow motion and it's just kind of the the poetry of, of feathers floating right. through the air and childhood innocence and happiness and, right. and violence and yeah uh vigo of course a, a huge influence on on the new wave totally. and, and on this whole generation of filmmakers um yeah uh <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 so hard for me to talk about this movie in in its parts because because it works so well as a whole mm-hmm. that to to like break it down into into the story or this performance and and to focus on on one thing at the expense of another seems seems wrong because it's like uh, it's like talking about the uh, the cello part in a symphony. Right. No, I I, I agree with you. Um, but there are things. There are things that, yeah, you can't, if you pull at one thread of this, you know, it'll just unravel, um, like Rivers Cuomo's sweater or something. But when, um, what I liked was it, you know, there, it sets certain things up and then, I mean, it kind of, kind of follows through with it, but there's this subplot uh, where Roland is going to, you know, he lost his, his day job, you know, whatever. He, he doesn't care. He just wants to read books or whatever. But then he gets a tip that he can... Um, get involved in some shady dealings or whatever. And so he goes and meets this barber or something, a beautician or something, and sets up this plan to, like, smuggle some diamonds or whatever. And so you think the movie's going to follow that tangent, and it doesn't. It just gives it up. Like, I mean, it it comes to a resolution, but but you expect there to be some sort of payoff with it, and there's not, and it's great. Like, and and that's exemplified in the scene where... um, he he goes back to see the the um, the barber um, after their first meeting, and he meets a shopkeeper from across the way. And the shopkeeper starts to tell him what he thinks is going on with the with the barber, um, and then Roland just ignores him and walks away in the middle of the guy's explanation. And I was like, "That's so great!" Yeah, there's there's something in, about Lola that that is not present in Lola that is in Demi's other films, and there's it's it's so not disturbing and not violent right and there are like little bits of violence that hang around on the edges uh there's just kind of the the outright tragedy of of umbrella shoreberg but there's also there's like an axe murderer in the background of the young girls of rochefort and then uh uh v uh is just like this bloody Greek tragedy where everything is sung in, in, you know, glorious technicolor, but then everyone dies horrible deaths. Right. Uh, but there's, there's, there, there isn't that, that kind of dark edge to Lola in, in, in Lola, everyone is, is pretty much a nice person and nobody really does anything bad and nothing bad ever happens. And it's, it's just great to be alive. Yeah. I, I, I love the scene where Roland tells, um, Lola, that he's always loved her, and and you would expect it to kind of culminate in some sort of um, like a showdown between the two, or, right? You and know, it, some kind of explosion, or right? Or and she just says, "Well, that's silly. I, you know, I don't love you, or whatever." And then they're kind of. Well, it, I mean, it, she she's nicer than that. She's I, like, I know. She's well, like, that's I'm, what I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm in love with this other guy. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It, it, you know, and and he's kind of wrecked by it for a minute. 
um, but then he kind of just is like, okay, well, whatever. You're you like, know, that's that's fair, and yeah. that's great. Like, and so it's so refreshing to see something like that, you know. Yeah. Um, and that happens time and again in this movie, and it's just, um, yeah, you know, it always you know builds to some potential danger, especially okay. with like the utter you know freedom with which the children are allowed to run around <laughs> not like as as a, a parent i'm like no you don't go to the amusement park with the sailor right 14 year old girl <laughs> hey she the mother did reprimand her when she came yeah, back but, but yeah not it was, really yeah it was a light it was, it was yeah. like oh don't do that yeah that's you don't want to do that <laughs> no um yeah and you know not in the in the 50s is different than Tacoma, Tacoma in the 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 twenty the rough streets or, of T Town. I know. Yeah, I know. And whatever. Uh, that's whatever why you decade had to, we're in now. The twenty tens. That's why you had to come here. I was not going to brave the dangers the, the wilds of, Tacoma. of Tacoma. Yeah, yeah I, there are golf balls flying everywhere. <laughs> it's a horrible place. So this film, uh, you know, Lola, as as with the the Fassbender film, is. Is a uh, is inspired by the the Joseph von Sternberg uh, 1930 film The Blue Angel, in which Marlene Dietrich plays a uh, a singer slash uh, prostitute named Lola. And it also has a, a dedication to to Max Ophuls, the the great director whose last film was uh, Lola Montez, who is the real person that the Marlena Dietrich character was named after, even though she's not really like the Marlena Dietrich character. Got it. Got it. <laughs> uh, you've seen the Blue Angel. You haven't seen Lola Montez. Right. Uh, how do you see the film relating to to the Sternberg film? Like, do you see it in any kind of you know critical interplay with it, or is it just you know picking the name and the kind of the rough idea of the character? I, I the latter um, for this film much more than uh, the Fassbender film, which we'll be talking about. Um, which I I couldn't get the Blue Angel out of my head with that one, and this one, yeah, the the circumstances are roughly the same this i mean not not her, even the circumstances her, her job is the same yeah the, her job is the same that's pretty much it um there's no um romantic tragedy at the end there's no you know no one's undone by love really at the end of this movie um which is kind of you know that's kind of the big thing in, in that so um yeah i you know i didn't it didn't really place with me um while i watched this film well, do you think do you think that that's intentional? That 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 to me is is making like an ideological stand against the kind of you know Sternbergian view of romance and and love as a, a kind of power play where one person ends up getting dominated by the other. That's a that's a good uh, way of thinking of it. Uh, I to be honest, I don't know how how much he's in dialogue with the original one. You know, I don't really think I can, I can ascribe that to him, but I mean, that's, that's a, that's definitely a valid reading of it. Um, and, and you're right. It is a totally different, um, outlook on, you know, matters of the heart or whatever. Yeah. I think, I think the, the, the Ofu's, uh, influence, uh, goes along with the visual style as well to me is, 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 you know, he's not, you know, as extreme as Max Ophel's and like the, the flowing kind of camera movements, mm -hmm. but it is, is much more on that side of the scale than the more kind of, uh, jump cutty montage Jean-Luc Godard style. Right. Uh, but but Lola Montez is is also takes a much more sympathetic view of of its heroine as as it kind of tells the story of this woman who uh, 
slept with all of these famous people in the 19th century and, and just ended up getting screwed literally, <laughs> literally and figuratively in every interaction where her, right. her only currency was her sexuality and, right. and just ends up as like a circus freak at the end. Right. Whereas uh, Demi's film is, is, is of course very sympathetic to, to his Lola, um, played by Anouk Ani, who's very pretty. <laughs> uh, but it, it, you know, it gives her so much more agency over, mm -hmm. over her own life. Mm -hmm. Like she is in charge. She's calling the shots with everything. She's a single mom raising her boy and doing a reasonably good job. It seems. Except that she leaves him at home and goes out carousing all night. But yes, yeah. you know, you know, but she, you know, she makes sure he's asleep first and he gets a trumpet out of it. So, I mean, he's yeah. And he gets to hang out on the, on the street in the middle of the day with no adult supervision right. at all, which Whatever. is what kids did <laughs> in the fifties apparently. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. She's, she's very, um, she, she's in control of the situation. She's in control of her life. And it goes back to that scene where she's, you know, she kind of pushes Roland aside and says, Hey, we're just friends or whatever, you know, and he respects that, you know, and, um, and she calls the shots with the sailor too. You know, he, he wants to go sleep with her on his last night and she's like, well, you can go to sleep, but you ain't, you know, getting anything or whatever. And he, and he's fine with that. You know, he just passes out and. Um, yeah, and and Dietrich's Lola calls the shots mm -hmm. as well as does the the one in the Fassbender film. But you don't get the feeling that they're nearly as happy as, as no, Mies Lola is. No, um, yeah, the the original or you know um, Dietrich's Lola. Um, there's a lot more of a destructive tendency with what's going on um, in her yeah know, like uh, life and the agency that she has. Yeah, like the the plot of the Blue Angels, like she's a, she's a cabaret singer and uh, a professor, the professor by who played Emil by uh, Emil Jannings. Uh. My pronunciations are amazing. I'm telling you, Emil Jannings <laughs> uh, falls for her, and first it's like a game for her to like toy with him and string him along and get her to, get him to like you know give her all of his money. And and then it becomes like the sadistic power play where she like makes him grovel at at her feet, and then she gets bored with him, and then she kind of begins to feel sorry for him, and then kind of question her you know role in the universe, and then you know she just goes on being evil. Yeah, basically. and then his life is completely destroyed. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great movie. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> but you know, Anoki Me here is you know she's leading you know what by all accounts should be a miserable life she's a single mom working in a cabaret where she has to like travel all around and is you know essentially pawed up by sailors for money and she seems totally happy well she's very practical about it you know she has a moment in the film where she um she's talking to roland because they haven't seen each other in 15 years and they meet in the cafe or something and they're kind of going you know taking stock of their life at that point and saying you know oh what have you been up to and stuff and you know she says very casually, she's like, yeah, you know, I always wanted to be a singer, and, you know, I took a, you know, she didn't say took a wrong turn, but it didn't go the way I wanted it to, but there's no, there doesn't seem to be any animosity about that, she's just like, that's the road I ended up on, and it's cool, you know, she's not bitter. Yeah, she's much more kind of uh, comfortable yeah. with, with her reality, and, and that's, and that's, uh, Kassar's problem is that he just he can't uh, adjust to the world. He just doesn't seem, he doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't know where he's going and he can't make a decision on, on what to do. Right. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's this 
strongest character in the film, um, and uh, you can totally see why everybody's totally into her. <laughs> I mean, beyond the fact that she's very, very pretty. She was very pretty. <laughs> uh, so this isn't the end of, of Roland's story. He, he shows up That's again right. in uh, The Umbrellas of Shoreberg. Like, like I said, his, his theme is, is reused, and it's the same actor. Uh, Mark Michel plays him in, in Cherbourg, and he comes along. He's now a, a very wealthy jewelry salesman, and uh, he marries the knocked-up Catherine Deneuve. So things end up pretty good for him. It's not so bad. He doesn't. He doesn't get his Lola. <laughs> right, but he gets Catherine Deneuve. So of course, you know she. You know they. They have their kids and they have their you know comfortable bourgeois life. But we all know she's still in love with that car mechanic who knocked her up. Right. So maybe he's not as happy as he should be. Well, and then she will eventually become a you know high class prostitute, and uh, you know it'll all come full circle. Yeah, and so, then Mich- Michelle Piccoli comes back around exactly and, and yeah and she's not there <laughs> yeah. if you want to if you want to listen to the further adventures of Catherine Deneuve you can check out our episode on Belle du Jour and Belle Toujours that's right and uh, she was our person of the week yeah and uh, both of which movies I liked quite a bit and one of which you did <laughs> that's right you'll have to listen to find out which one <laughs> so that's our discussion of Lola um, tying in with the films this week we're going to be uh, listening to the kinks because the kinks are totally amazing um, so here's the song do you remember Walter Okay, welcome back. Uh, it's been a few weeks now, or a few episodes now, since we've had any sort of news to talk about, and uh, not much has really changed, <laughs> but we're going to pull some stuff out here for you. Um, I don't know if it's that there's not news, or if we're just not paying attention. It might be we're not paying attention, to be quite honest with you. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, I think we talked about this last year, though, around this time, is, you know, the summer season tends to be kind of the doldrums with you know, at least the news that we would be interested in. Yeah, I mean, there's the, a new Guardian of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy, is that what it's called? It's like a trailer. There's yeah. a trailer for things. Uh, yeah, there's <laughs> trailers for stuff. The big news today, which you should know if you're going to Germany, is the Germany 
beat Brazil in the World Cup seven to one. Did they really? Yeah. Oh my it was, god! It was amazing. I was I was I was like watching the game and Germany was up uh, two to nothing. They scored their second run and then like my daughter you know got up from a nap. They call it runs in, in football. Whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, they scored their second goal. And, like, the, my daughter got up for a nap, so I'm like, I'm just going to go and, and, and put her back down. I'll just, like, take two minutes. I come back downstairs, and they're up for nothing. Oh, my gosh. And then I, you know, I kind of rewound it so I could watch the, the, the goals. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, up, they're up for nothing. And then I go and start making some ramen. I put the, the noodles in the pot and, and like, stir the, the noodles. <laughs> look up again, it's five to nothing. <laughs> it, was, it was, like, the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Brazil was terrible. Wow. So does, what does this mean now? Well, they play the winner of the, the Netherlands-Argentina game, uh-huh. which uh, will all happen by the time this airs. Like, we're recording this on Tuesday, <laughs> and the other semifinal is tomorrow, and then the final will be this weekend, and then I'm going to post the show, like, two days after that. <laughs> so this is all going to sound just completely ridiculous. But still, they were up 7 to nothing in the wow. World Cup semifinal against Brazil in Brazil. I don't know if I want Germany to win or not, because I don't know if I want to get to Germany... And be involved in, like, post-World Cup fever. They will all still be drunk. I know, that's kind of what I'm afraid of. <laughs> a nation of drunk Germans is not my idea of a good time. Um, in, in my experience with Germans, they're much more fun when they're drunk. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking of when the Seahawks won uh, last year and the pandemonium. Well, those are, those are Seattleites. Those are Scandinavians. That's, that's right. That's a different uh, you know, species different kind of, drunk. of Northern Europeans. That's right. Well, uh, well, way to go, Germany. Um, uh, so that's our news for the show. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, no, so back to movies. Um, uh, recently, the Hollywood Reporter uh, polled a bunch of people um, in Hollywood um, to pick the 100 greatest movies of all time um, because there's never been a list like that um, before. So they, they called it Hollywood's 100 Favorite Films. Um, and as you would expect, it's, it's pretty obvious, um, and very egregious. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's an appallingly it, bad list. It's a really bad list. And, you know, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but, you know, part of the problem is when you get a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of people in a room, you know, they're the movies that everybody agrees on that are obviously going to be the ones that get called and put into this thing. Um, but still, Forrest Gump is number 14. Yeah, well, there's, you know, a lot of the, the people that were voting in this poll are the same people that are voting for for Oscars, so you'd expect to see recent Best Picture winners do well, and and they do. Yes, they definitely do. Um, yeah, it's a pretty pretty astounding, I mean, I'm trying to find something that I, that kind of surprises me in a good way about this list, and, you know, this is not in a good way, but Avatar at number 67, I, does anybody still like Avatar? Like, I think, I feel like we're all over that right by now, right? Avatar is like Lady Gaga. Like, Did that, anyone like Avatar originally? I think everybody saw Avatar for the spectacle, and they said, wow, that was some mighty spectacle, and then they forgot about it. Like, I, that's how I felt. I saw it, I was like, oh, you know, that was competently made, and now I forgot about it, you know? Yeah. But, like, how does it get on this? I mean, it's crazy. I mean... I know it's because of the box office of the thing or whatever, but still, it's pretty... Well, I uh, mean, I think it's... it's these, these are the people that make movies, and that was a movie that was made in a, in a unique and interesting way. Right. And so if you, if you are a special effects technician, then, then Avatar is going to be, you know, a, a standard setter in your field, and you're going to think that that is a good thing. Um, 
what what this tells me is that the people who make movies generally don't have any idea what makes movies good. <laughs> that's that's a good. Well, you, yeah. I mean, I'm looking. I'm staring dead in the face at uh, one of your uh, favorite films to uh, tackle: Saving Private Ryan at number forty-six. <laughs> yeah, uh, here's uh, Gladiator at number sixty-nine, which I, I know the world is is waiting breathlessly for my. Uh, I am planning. It's in the works. I'm going to rewatch Gladiator. Oh boy! And I'm going to watch uh, out, internet. Yeah. <laughs> well, that uh, is a movie that I really hate. In, instead of us, you know, picking this apart and just you know being holier than thou about it, and just being full of hot air, I thought it would be really cool if we posted on our blog at the georgesandershow.blogspot.com um, an alternate list of the hundred greatest films that we thought collectively um, deserve to be on a list such as this. And we will go one step further. We'll, we won't even pick a single movie that's on this list. And there are good movies on which, this Which list. will be hard because number 100 is, is, seven, is seven. Our, our, you know, agreed upon greatest film of all time. Right. Seven Samurai is number 100, which just goes to show you how terrible of a list this is that, uh, you know... Uh, Obviously the greatest film at all, of all time. Two of the Lord of the Rings movies beat uh, that. Gladiator so. <laughs> beat Seven Samurai. Yeah, so um, so look for that. You know, it should be posted right around the time that this episode uh, gets posted. So um, that'll be fun. Maybe we can do like twenty five a day for like a week or something, or four days. Sure. Um, yeah, we're making it up as we go along. We people. love we love making lists and and complaining about other people's lists. Yeah. So and you can always give us feedback on our list and say, oh my gosh, why did you guys put that on there? Because uh, we we love to argue about that. Yeah, um, and this is and this is a separate from our our annual. Well, it's not it's not annual yet. We've only done it once, but we're going to do it again. Yeah, uh, kind of sight and sound top ten episode thing that we did last uh, September, where we each picked uh, ten movies that we would put on the sight and sound list. Uh, we're going to do that again, which will get us up to I think thirty films each, because we're counting the one that we did before we started the George Sanders show. Right. So look for that bit of list making as well <laughs> in the near future. Get ready. So the lists uh, are flying fast and furious. Speaking of list making, there's uh, a lot of uh it's not news, it's the opposite of news. There's a lot of nostalgia for movies that came out twenty and, and twenty five years ago. This is uh the twentieth anniversary of nineteen ninety four, which if you are a uh cinephile of my generation is the year uh zero of uh movie mania it's the year of, of pulp, pulp fiction. fiction uh and it's also uh the 25th anniversary of 1989 which was like the greatest blockbuster summer ever which was headlined by batman which everybody is recently talking about because it was like the 25th anniversary of its premiere yeah i i don't get i mean you're right it's nostalgia it boils down to nostalgia um i was shocked by how many pieces there were on the internet about Tim Burton's Batman. I mean, it was crazy. The last week was just nothing but that. And and I rewatched Batman uh, several years ago, maybe when The Dark Knight came out or something like that. And you know what? I'm going to just lay it out on the table. Batman is not a good movie. It's got really great elements. The, you know, the production design's fantastic and stuff. But as a as a as a picture, I'm sorry. It it's it's not good, and 
you know, you're watching it through rose-colored glasses because I loved it as a kid. Don't get me wrong. I watched Batman like crazy. I remember when Batman Returns came out. I may have told this story before. I hadn't seen Batman Returns yet in the theater, um, but my friend Jeff had. And we went to the park that was between our two houses, and I sat on a swing. We both sat on swings, and he told me the entire plot of Batman Returns from beginning to end because I was so ready to see that thing. Um, that movie also doesn't hold up very well. I'm, I'm just going to say it. Uh, I think I think that Batman is great. Uh, I will say that uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, not a good movie. See, that one, I will, has, I will, it, I will play is, the... It, it is a movie that has some good elements in right. it, but it is one of Spielberg's sloppiest movies. I will play the uh, nostalgia card with that one. I haven't seen that one in a long, long time, um, if I remember correctly. But of those movies from 89 that everybody's talking about, I watch Last Crusade more than any of them. I mean, I watch that thing. I think I've probably seen Last Crusade more than I've seen Raiders, um, just because of that you know, couple years when I had it on VHS. Um, so I have really good memories of that movie. But... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna write like a thousand-word essay about how amazing Last Crusade is, uh, just because that was the case. Yeah, and I think you know, there's something kind of. I don't want to say you know disturbing. There's something odd about this kind of turn in nostalgia. Like I've seen many more pieces about the films of 1989 and 1994, and you know, you know, 2004. Kind of these retrospective pieces become more and more prominent and you know we're we're guilty of that as well because we've we've done that kind of thing we're doing we we did the 1933 we're doing what we're doing is different for 1984 for the whole year i think what we're doing is different because we're we're kind of objectively going and watching these movies i mean um that a lot of them we haven't seen before so we're not watching them i mean some of them we're watching for nostalgia purposes sure um you know, I, I'm going to watch This Is Spinal Tap for the, like, billionth time, and it's going to be fucking awesome. But, you know, <laughs> that, that's a little, I think that's a little different, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm also watching, uh, I just watched Wheels on Meals, uh, which I've never seen before, because of gearing up for this show. So we're trying to give a more comprehensive view of that year. Um, yeah, I guess there, there is a difference between history and nostalgia. And a lot of the problem with these these pieces is is that they are nostalgia, which is a very it's very personal, it's very subjective, and it's very solipsistic. It's like my memory of when I was thirteen and stood in line at the the multiplex to go see the first show of Batman is somehow really important, and you should know about it, as opposed to you know actual criticism of Batman as a movie or looking at it historically and seeing how the blockbusters have have changed and how they interact and how it's shaped, you know, the movies that have come after it. I don't know. Yeah, it's it, you know what it reminds me of. It's 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 it, it seemed at least from my perspective when BuzzFeed really started to gain traction on the internet, and there were all of these lists and all of these things like remember you know all those Nickelodeon shows from 1992, and and it was just fluff stuff that was on there, and and sure I looked at that stuff too because hell I watched a ton of Double Dare when I was a kid, and it was awesome. But you see those things, and then you kind of just go about your business, but um, I love how the new segment of this show just turns into us complaining all the time. <laughs> For, uh, the National Geographic Channel, of all things, is, is running this kind of three-part special on uh, the 90s, 
look back to the '90s, the last the last great decade. Last or, great. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, absolutely. And it's it's for the most part it's it's one of those dreadful I love the '90s kind of thing where it does like little like three minute segments on Hey, do you remember Jeffrey Dahmer? Right. Wasn't that weird? <laughs> Jack Kevorkian. Yeah. And, <laughs> But every once in a while, yeah, you, you know, there's there's like an interesting, you know, talking head there who will start to say something interesting about a, a cultural phenomenon, and and we've only watched the first of, of three episodes so far, and uh, it's it's uh, a kind of theme running through all of like the the EMF Fresh Prince of Bel Air bullshit mm-hmm. is is this idea of how reality television took over and how like the spectacle of the real and 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 uh and confessionality became the dominant mode of culture and how the real world and and court tv and stuff like that changed our relation to to entertainment and they, you you get the sense that the commentator is just getting going and then they'll cut to like Courtney Love <laughs> And so it's like really frustrating because like there there is interesting stuff that happened in the '90s and and I would like to you know see that explored with you know some depth as opposed to like with the the editorial style of the guy who made the uh, the uh, uh, Winona Ryder's documentary in in Reality Bites. That's you know what's interesting about that some a little kernel of this Batman hype. Um, you know, it's nice that some people are putting it in, in its um, historical context, you know, and, and they're, they're saying, you know, you know, it, in a way, this is kind of important because this was the birth of the modern superhero movie, which is something that we're still, you know, uh, suffering through right now. And, you know, it kind of, the, the, I mean, the hype machine around Batman was a big historical event, you know, just like, you know, Jaws was or something in, in the 70s or something. So, yeah, if you put it into a kind of a context, sure, but a lot of the stuff that, and what I was, you know, railing against is, is just all this stuff like, you know, someone just posts like the original theatrical trailer for Batman. And, and it's like, what, what is that? What is that? You know? That's not a thing. That's not a thing. <laughs> hey, remember this? Remember that? Hey! <laughs> yes, I, I remember that. Um, you know, so, um, you know, two cranky old men complaining. Uh, kind of part of the <laughs> Well, speaking of, of looks at the past, uh, one of my favorite film authors has a new book out, which I just learned today, and I have... No idea. He's only written two books that I know of. I've read uh, I've read both of them uh, about movies, at least, uh, and I don't know anything about the guy other than these two books, which are just about movies and not really about his own life at all. So it's not like you know, like uh, you read a Jonathan Rosenbaum book and you learn all about his childhood in Alabama. Right. You you read these books and you learn a lot about movies, but you don't really learn anything about about James Harvey, who's the author, and he's. Uh, the author of uh, Romantic Comedy in Hollywood from Lubitsch to Sturgis, which is a massive, I'm holding it right here, <laughs> uh, study of romantic comedy in the 1930s and 40s, and also uh, uh, Movie Love in the 50s, which is mostly about mel- melodramas and films like that from the 1950s. And they're both amazing, and I'm really excited to read his new book, which, which is Watching Them Be, Star Presence on the Screen from Garbo to Balthazar. And that is all that I know about the book. I haven't actually read anything about it yet, but it, it appears to be about stars from the 1920s well, until the 1960s. What do you know? Yeah. So it sounds really awesome. And 
I I remember years ago I loaned you Movie Love in the Fifties after after I read it. I'm like, this book is amazing. You need to read it. And uh, you made it like ten pages in and <laughs> realized that you hadn't actually seen any of the. Movies. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I do remember that. I, I was uh, yeah, I was. And you know, I can get through certain books. Um, you know, like we're reading, we're both reading the Genius of Hollywood for the next uh, show right now and you know they talk about some movies that I haven't seen um, and but sometimes that works but for some reason in that book I remember being like oh I feel like I'm not getting enough out of this um, yeah and it, it's weird because I was actually as I was unpacking my books I was looking for for movie love in the 50s in particular because I have seen many more of the movies now mm -hmm. than yeah. you know eight years ago whenever right. it was that that I read it so I was thinking you know I should reread that book and then I'm just looking on, you know, I was looking on a film comment for any news stuff and saw that they had a book review of a new book by James Harvey. I'm like, there's a new book by James Harvey? So there you go. Got You're living your own personal Lola right now. All these connections. So I wanted I wanted to, to read something just to kind of show how awesome he is. And it's about, uh, uh, there's two things in the world that that bug me. There's two, me? Th two things that people, <laughs> people do. There's... Hundreds of things that people in the world do that bug me, but but two things that really bug me are people who complain about the Broadway melody sequence and singing in the rain, <laughs> and people who complain about the ending of Red River. Oh, and you know the ending of Red River. I this do is, know the ending of Red River. Uh, this ties in well because it just came out on Criterion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Howard Hawks's film, um, where we've been kind of led through the whole time to think that that John Wayne is going to get his revenge on Montgomery Clift, his his adopted son, and they've had a following out as as Wayne has become kind of like a, a murderous fascist psychopath, and and they get to like their big showdown at the end, and they start fighting, and then a woman comes up to him and says, "Why are you fighting? Don't be stupid. You two love each other." And then it the ends end. <laughs> and so, uh. And so people like to complain about that. Right. That's not real. Very there abrupt. Should, there and, should yeah. be violence. Right. You know, that's dumb. Uh, you know, clearly they couldn't have John Wayne be, you know, get killed at the end. So obviously the studio interfered with this. And this is uh, uh, James Harvey in uh, Romantic Comedy in Hollywood talking talking about the ending. And I'm just going to read this, this paragraph here because I think it's awesome. So bear with us, people. Yeah. But when Dunson does catch up with him, striding through the cows and down the main street, Matt refuses to draw his gun. So they have a fist fight instead. But the heroine, Tess Millay, breaks that up by waving a gun at them and telling them, in effect, to be sensible. More than that, she is mad. She says so repeatedly. And she is mad because she's had just the impression the movie has contrived to get the rest of us, that one of them might get killed. But she was taken in, as she now sees. Everyone can see you two love each other. She is also, and primarily, relieved, like the audience by now, and like Hawks himself. I certainly would have hated to kill one of them, he later conceded. It frustrates me to start killing people off for no reason at all especially at the end of a movie. But no reason at all would be every reason in the world in a conventional Western. What else have we been waiting for? And yet, in fact, Tess Millay is right, as we are reminded that we know. Sensible people don't kill or maim each other for revenge or honor or empty matters of pride, especially if they are friends. Hawks may love these confrontations, and he may, and he may know, no one better, how to convey their excitement, but he is finally too sensible, really too sensible to follow through. And the surge of good feeling that now invades the film turns out to have been waiting in it all along, transforming even what's gone before, making those earlier excitements seem almost dim by comparison. It's this final powerful realization that makes the movie feel so distinctively Hoxian in the end. A sensible Western. <laughs> Put that on the back of your DVD criterion. A yeah. sensible Western. Yeah. Um, so I just, I, I just love that. 
yeah, no, it's it's that's that's very solid. Um, and that's really great, Sean. I look forward to, to that book coming out. Um, what, when is is it released? Now is it out? It, it's uh, yeah, yeah, published today. Oh, look at that. <laughs> well, I, lo I look forward to your review of it on a you know upcoming show. Yeah, if I ever finish re this reading this book, that is going to be the subject of our next episode. I am going to. Uh, get that book and read that book too. Nice. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> well, in between uh, books and sleeping, you watch movies, uh, from what I hear. Yes. Um, so, I'd like to turn the show over to one of our favorite segments, uh, What's Sean Watching? Surprisingly enough, I am not watching movies from Hong Kong. I've been watching movies Who from... Who are you? I've been watching movies from Hong Kong a lot. Yes. Over the last year and a half, and for the last two weeks, not a single one. Are you are you getting the shakes? <laughs> Night terrors. There's a cold lot of sweats. there's a lot of Hong Kong movies I want to watch, and and every once in a while somebody on Letterboxd will post a review of one. I'm like, ooh, I want to watch that. Right. And I'm like, nope, I'm, I'm I gotta I gotta clear my palate before diving back in to Hong Kong movies later this summer. I'm watching I'm watching other stuff. Oh right. And uh, what other stuff you? One watching? of the one of the other movies I watched was uh, uh, Anne of the Indies, which is a pirate movie directed by Jacques Tenor in 1951, and it is. Uh, it's a very odd movie. It's about a uh, a woman pirate, Anne, of the of Indies. Of the Indies, yeah. Okay, I'm uh, following you. And she captures a a Frenchman played by uh, played by Louis Jordan, who uh, kind of tricks her into thinking that he is not a spy and is in fact in love with her and has a map to buried treasure. And all of her subordinates, including uh, fat, drunk, old Herbert Marshall, uh, say that she should not trust him. But she is so overcome with lust for, for a handsome Louis Jordan that she goes along with him and is led into a trap by the English. And then Blackbeard shows up. Yeah! <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, uh, it reminded me more than anything of, of Johnny Guitar. Except if the Mercedes McCambridge character was the hero instead mm. of the Joan Crawford character, mm. who I guess in this case would be uh, Louis Jordan's uh, actual wife back at home, played by Deborah Paget, who is really pretty. <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing has, a theme with this episode. That has Sean. very little else going for her. Um, yeah, and and you posted a review on Letterbox for this thing um, that kind of gained a lot of traction. Um, I I really responded to it when you said the words uh, a pirate version of Johnny Guitar because that sounds just absolutely phenomenal to me um, yeah it's 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 an odd thing to me the the pirate genre the the swashbuckler and I guess the pirate is a subgenre the, the, the pirate film is a subgenre of the the broader swashbuckler area is one of the the few major genres of the studio era that hasn't gotten a, a kind of respectable revival uh, in later decades. Like the Western has been revived. The, the crime melodrama got a, a fancy new name as the film noir. The, uh, you know, the gangster movie, the musical, the, the you know, straight uh, women's melodrama. All of these have have gotten critical reappraisals and and you know lengthy studies and and you know they have major works that show up on top one hundred lists. Right. Nothing of the sort has has happened with the the pirate genre, and I don't really know why. 
I, I have I have a theory that maybe it's lacking like that one singular masterpiece. Right. So there's not really like a pirate movie like for a people to rally around, like, yeah. like a Singing in the Rain or a uh, or the Searchers or Double Indemnity or you know something that right. everyone can latch onto and right. say that this is the pirate movie. But it's not you know it's not for lack of of you know production values like they they're not as uh you know the the naval scenes are not nearly as as great as the ones in like uh master and commander mm -hmm. which is not technically a pirate movie but is close enough or cutthroat island <laughs> i haven't seen cutthroat island but but the uh the pirates of the caribbean movies you know are you know you know, a popular revival of the genre that everyone thinks is based on on the theme park, and and yeah, the name is based on the theme park, but they're very clearly playing on the conventions laid out on the shop by the genre in the 1940s. And you know, you watch enough of these of these studio pirate films, and you can see all of those elements in right. in uh, in the Johnny Depp films. So I don't know. It's it's a subject for for further research. Like there's a lot of auteurs, like recognized you know heroes, uh, you know hero directors who made films in the pirate genre. And you know Frank Borzaghi made a, a pirate film. Robert Siodmak, you know Jacques Tenor, right. Raoul Walsh made a pirate movie. Right. Yet you know they don't have the the same cultural currency as their other films. Right. Well, what I wouldn't give for uh, speaking of Red River, a Howard Hawks pirate movie, and and maybe that's it. Howard Hawks never made a pirate movie, he and he did. made it something in every other genre. So, right. So yeah. if there was, if you know, if there was a a, a pirate thing from another world, then right. maybe, yeah, maybe it would have its day in the sun. Um, but no, I, your uh, discussion about that or your review about that really made me actually want to dive into these things and because I've been I've seen a few you know I've seen Captain Blood it's you know some of the you know Errol Flynn stuff and um, they're fun they're yeah. fun movies you know um, so yeah definitely I should I should definitely see some more of those so someone else who who never made a pirate movie is Jacques Demy it's our loss yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, and Jacques Demy, obviously, as we said at the beginning of the show, is our person of the week. Um, not only because Lola is the film we're talking about, but because that Criterion box set is due out July 22nd, I believe. Uh, Blu-ray set that it contains six films, I think. It contains uh, a lot. I, I don't know. As, as the reviews have just started coming in to the, uh, the DVD Beaver, which is the Internet's number one source for DVD reviews. Cha-ching! <laughs> <laughs> and apparently the, the transfer of Lola, the, the restoration that was done to the print before it got to Criterion, is, is pretty bad. Mm. But the rest of the movies, it sounds like, look, look pretty good. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Is there talk of doing these in uh, single-volume sets? Or are they, it's all going to be bundled together? Not, not that I've heard of, yeah. but... Uh, you know, I, I was really tempted to get it at the the fifty percent off Barnes and Noble sale, which is going on now. Yeah, at your local Barnes and Noble or BarnesandNoble.com. Cha ching! <laughs> uh, I swear we're not getting paid for these uh, plugs that Sean's doing right and now. And and at the at the sale, you can get it for sixty two dollars, which considering that a, a regular you know Criterion goes for like forty bucks, yeah, is ridiculously good deal. Yeah, to get that for sixty two, so that's what that's what I would do. Yeah, if I even even if Lola's transfer is bad, yeah, 
But that's I mean, because I, you already own Lola. I own I own I own Lola umbrellas and Young Girls of Rochefort. But uh, to get the others, uh, Bay of Angels, uh, Jean Ron V, and uh, Donkey Skin, mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, just those three alone. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Let alone the fact that the three that I that uh, I do already have are uh, three of my favorite movies right. ever. Right. Every single one of them right. is perfect. Um, so. so how how many Demi films have you seen um, beyond those seen, three? Just seen the the four now. I just seen uh, the 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 kind of trilogy with uh, Lola, Umbrellas of Shorebrook, and Young Girls of Rochefort, and then uh, Ushan Ranvi. I just saw this week as well, mm. which is uh, one of his last films. Was it his last film? One of his last films. Uh, and is is another uh, sung all the way through, like Umbrellas of Shoreberg, but but much darker. Mm -hmm. And like uh, like Shoreberg and and Rochefort, it stars uh, Daniel Derieu, uh, but no Catherine Deneuve. Although Michelle Piccoli does come back, and he has like red hair and wears this green suit, and he looks exactly like uh, uh, Denis Levant's uh, oh no character. Oh no, I, <laughs> the, I don't the, know the if I can handle it. Film, Ooh. So. Uh, yeah, I, I got. I guess I got the feeling that that that, uh, <laughs> that, that character inspired uh, uh, Leo's Carax, but uh, oh uh, it it is good. It doesn't have Michelle Legrand doing the score, which I think uh, uh, is a big uh, detriment. Mm -hmm. It's almost kind of like eighty synthy at times, mm -hmm. which just seems wrong for right. for Demi's style of of you know kind of over the top romanticism as. You know, it gets it gets more and more melodramatic as as his films go along. Right. Uh, we talked a little bit about about Umbrellas and Short Work, which you know, as we said, is is sung all the way through. It's got this vibrant Technicolor with Catherine Deneuve and this really kind of sad story. Uh, have you seen Young Girls of Rochefort? I have not, um, and it's something that I plan on rectifying as soon as possible. It's, it's something that I've wanted to see for so many years, and I just you should, you should have told me I would have brought you my DVD. Well, I just I, watched yesterday again. I, I sorry. <laughs> Next time I see you in like three days, I'll I'll get it from you then. Yeah. Um, I have seen Donkey Skin, mm. uh, which played it. It had a fest. It had a um, rep run, maybe ten years ago, maybe a little less than ten years ago. I remember seeing it at the Varsity in Seattle. Um, and it's, it's good, um, from my, you know, my memory's hazy of it. Um, you know, it's got the great colors and stuff and it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fairy tale, um, and Catherine Deneuve stars in it. And, uh, I remember, um, the donkey, uh, defecating jewels a lot. So that was, that was kind of crazy. Um, Again, the jewels with, with Roland Cassard. Yeah. Being the jewels. Exactly. It's all, it's donkey, all connected. Yeah. Also the donkey. <laughs> is Cassard. That's right. Um, and it's a good film. I wouldn't put. I, I definitely wouldn't put it up there with Umbrellas um, or Lola, which are the only other two that I've seen that I I think are both five star movies to the max. Um, but yeah, I've wanted to see Rochefort forever. So yeah, uh, uh, Young Girls of Rochefort stars uh, uh, Catherine Deneuve and her sisters. Uh, her sister, uh, uh, Francoise Dorliac. Uh, shortly before she she died, I, I believe in a car accident, uh, and also um, uh, George Chakiris from uh, West Side Story, and Daniel Darius again, and Michelle Piccoli, and, and Gene Kelly, and Gene Kelly, uh, who is 
for almost the entire movie dubbed, mm. which is kind of understandable with the songs. Like all of the singers are dubbed in the movie except for Daniel Dario, mm-hmm. but it's really disconcerting in in the dialogue scenes because you you see Gene T- Kelly talking, but it's not Gene Kelly's right. voice, and he's so distinctive. Right. There there is one scene where he's talking to to Piccoli and he is using his own voice, and he's speaking he's speaking perfectly fine French. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what the the problem was that led mm-hmm. them to to dub the other scenes of his dialogue, mm-hmm. but. It's it's like the one flaw in an otherwise perfect movie. Mm. Yeah, that can be distracting to say the least. But yeah, and it, 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 would, it wouldn't be stupid. if you didn't know right. Gene Kelly. But but part of the the point of putting Gene Kelly in this movie in 1967 is that it's Gene, Gene Kelly, Kelly right. and like the the star iconography is important to that and, sure. and to have a different voice. And maybe it's the same voice because. When you know Jacques Demy is watching the Gene Kelly movie in a theater in, in Paris, it's most likely dubbed and not subtitled in the 1940s and 1950s. So true, you know. Yeah, maybe they don't have point. that same association, right? But we do. But we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. I, you know, I, I Jacques Demy, um, you know, of the of the French directors from that era, and you, like we said at the beginning of the show, you know, slightly removed from the French New Wave and stuff. Um, I, I don't think of him when I kind of think of that era and that time and, and the, the filmmakers that were, uh, you know, around doing stuff. Um, but he's, you know, looking at the stuff I've seen, gosh, he's up there with, I mean, I mean, this, the stuff like Lola and Umbrellas, I put it up there with the best Godard stuff, the best Truffaut. He didn't work as often. As as those other directors well, did. Well, who, who works as often as Godard? I mean, that was just well, insane. Eric Romer did, and well, Francois Truffaut did, and Clutcher Prol did. And, well, I don't, but I mean... I mean, he, he made more movies, uh, you know, uh, I think even Jacques Dorvet probably has made more movies by this point, because he, he didn't work as often, and he died young. He died right. in 1990, and he was only 59 years old. So he didn't have, like, the, the whole great... Uh, Second, you know, second wave right. of his career, like like Alain Rene did, like right. with his his last you know few movies, uh, all being really really fantastic. Right. Uh, when he's like in his eighties, right? So we never we never got that like second act, right? I mean, even Agnes Barda is still putting out great movies. Well, she did the the Beaches of uh, Agnes documentary a few years ago. That's really really uh, terrific. It's very good. Um, yeah, I mean, she's the one that I would think of of having a second wave because that really kind of brought her back to the attention of, uh, of people. and um, I think that might have been her third wave, because I think she oh, had I the know. second one in the 80s. She had the 80s with Vagabond and stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I like The Gleaners and I, which is very similar to Beaches of Agnes and stuff. And um, It's interesting, though, because, you know, they, they were married until he died. Um, um, and obviously this has nothing to do with anything, but their films, to me, seem more different from each other than anybody else that was working in that, or for the most part, seemed more different um, from one another's work than. Uh, uh, I, I haven't seen very many of, of Varda's films. I, I think I've only seen two. I think just Beaches of Agnes and, and Cleo from Five to Seven. Mm-hmm. But watching Lola um, in the the scenes of of Casar uh, uh, just kind of wandering around the city and, and interacting with people reminded me of, of similar scenes in 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 Cleo, where where she is 
as well, just kind of wandering around her city and having like little adventures and meeting people. And, you know, that may just be the, the kind of new wave, uh, neorealist style where they're out in the streets and they're, they're speaking, you know, a more stylized dialogue than you get with like an Italian neorealist, but mm-hmm. just putting like the camera black and white out in the, the, you know, French city streets, uh, had that kind of uh, new wave immediacy. And it might be just what those movies have in common with, like, Breathless and 400 Blows. Right. More than any kind of sensibility. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I feel like the the permeating... The, the feelings of both films seem to me completely different, you know? Um, I mean, the stories are very different, too. You know, one is uh, a lot more tragic and kind of, you know... But, um, yeah, I could see that. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's a shame that he, you know, it's 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 funny we're talking about two directors who are kind of cut down, you know, early this week, you know. We've got, you know, Fassbender died when he was 37. Yeah, but he made like 500 <laughs> movies in 10 years. So It's true. We have like a massive amount of work from Fassbender. But, you know, age, you know, age will give you different perspectives on things, you know, and it would be interesting totally. to see like an old Jacques Demy film, like when he's, you know, Godard's age or whatever, you know, and, uh, you know, yeah. he's got a whole life that he can look, reflect back on. And stuff. Yeah, if it was up to me, all of the directors would still be working in their <laughs> 80s. Like I, you, you heard the the rumor that, that Elaine May and Stanley Donna, and I who, who were married, are, are working on you know, getting a movie together, and I would be so excited to see that. You I've know, heard that too. Stanley yeah. Donnan making a movie, you know, 65 years after Singing in the Rain, I totally want to see that. <laughs> yeah, and getting Elaine May back into doing anything is, is, is always a wonderful, it would be a wonderful thing. So, um, yeah, so Jacques Demy is totally awesome, and I really look forward to, you know, I, I you know, you've, you've kind of given me a little bit of pause, um, about buying this set because of the Lola, and, um, but God, I really want to watch all those movies. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not, uh, a lot of these reviews can be really hyperbolic. Right. Uh, the, the DVD reviewing community is very particular in their, in their, in their tastes. And, you know, whether or not you think a movie has been scrubbed with too much digital noise removal is, is much more subjective than they like to make you sure. think it is. Uh, I would not not buy the set right. because <laughs> Lola looks too glossy. Right. Uh, especially because you're not, you're not going to find a better version of that's Lola, true. most likely. Like, you could, you could, you know, get the DVD version of it that's probably out of print now. Um, I doubt it's going to look any yeah. better. Yeah. I mean, this is a Blu-ray. And, I mean, the other, I mean... The thought, and I, you know, I've been kind of salivating before this set was even discussed. Um, I've been, I've been salivating over the idea of a Blu-ray of the Umbrellas of Shitwork forever. I mean, that thing is gonna look like candy. I mean, I, you know, I will probably just have that on my television all the time because that's just gonna be a beautiful experience. I will say, if you if you ever get a chance to see any of these movies in a theater, you, you yes, have to do that. No, absolutely. One of, one of my favorite movie-going experiences was at the, the Northwest Film Forum. It was a double feature. Um, they did a series of, of double features based on composers. Mm-hmm. And this was a Michelle Legrand double feature of Umbrellas of Shoreberg and Cleo from 5 to 7. Yeah. And that was, uh, you know, Cleo is great. It's a really good movie. Uh, but seeing Umbrellas for like the eighth time, but seeing it in a theater... Uh, really, you know, cemented just what an amazing movie that is. Yeah, it's it's astounding. Um, it really is. Um, and you know, his 
his stuff is so singular, you know? Like, it's so... Um, like we said, you know, Lola is his first feature, comes out fully formed. I mean, it's like, this thing is, is, is just perfect. Um, and his whole sensibility is just so Jacques Demy. I mean, it's, you know, there's no, nobody quite wraps all of these kind of things together into make these kind of it's it's, it's a clockwork universe that, that never feels cold right. or, or mechanical, even though every single element in the film is, is perfectly calibrated to fit in with every other element. It's, it's always, you know, full of warmth and, and mm -hmm. color and emotion and, you know, sadness and romanticism. Mm -hmm. He's, he's the, the anti Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Put that on your box set. I would buy that box set in a heartbeat if that sticker was on there. Um, yeah, he's great. And I look forward to watching these other films. Um, speaking of, other films um, are tying in with the theme of the show. Our essential this week is uh, vacation films. Um, because you are going on vacation. Because you're you get, getting a vacation from me. So. Because you you get vacations. That's right. Because you don't have any children. I, what are you talking about? My child is right the, the, right between us that, right now. That little hairy dog is <laughs> not a child. Um, oh, uh, Kim says uh, she taught Elizabeth how to say Mike. Oh, is that her first word? No. Damn! <laughs> <laughs> that's the closest I'm going to get. Um, well, that's very sweet. Mm -hmm. um, so, vacations. So, uh, did, did you have a vacation movie that just sprung immediately to mind? Besides yes. National Lampoon? Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I was tempted to pick a, a Hong Sang Soo because, mm. obviously, mm -hmm. Hong Sang Soo is our greatest contemporary filmmaker of, about vacations. Uh, but I, I have to go with a, an Eric Romer film who is the all time greatest filmmaker of vacations. And, uh, uh, his best movie about a vacation is from 1986. It's the green Ray. Mm. Have you seen, it? I have not seen, it. you should. <laughs> it's about a woman who is, uh, he's, she's kind of bored and she's kind of lonely and she's kind of annoying and she has to go on vacation because it's France and you have to take like. 10 weeks of vacation every 12 weeks or else you lose your job or something. Mm -hmm. That was a little hyperbole of making fun of the French. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. Uh, so she, she, you know, goes off on one vacation and it's not working out. So she goes back home and she heads out on another vacation and that's not working out either. And she keeps not being able to find exactly what she's looking for in her vacation until she does. And that's the movie. <laughs> that sounds good. It's really great. Um, well, that's another French directors, you know, who I need to see more of. Um, yeah. you, you know, I, when's that Blu-ray box set coming out? I don't know. I mean, Criterion put out the the Six Moral Tales yeah. box set, box set, but then they haven't done anything they haven't since. Anything since. I've managed over over the years with like various sales at uh, like Amazon UK to uh -huh. to get almost all of his films on DVD for for reasonably you know cheap, mm -hmm. but they're not you know big Criterion right. Blu-ray box box sets right. blocks block sets block sets, uh, but he's he's. Uh, He's really great. Yeah, I remember when you were diving head first into that stuff, and uh, yeah, you were overwhelmed. Yeah, awesome. I still am. Like, there's, 
He did he did movies in series. He did the Six Moral Tales, and then he did uh, eight uh, comedies and proverbs, and then he did Four Seasons with like some random movies that aren't part of of these kind of sets interspersed throughout. And I I'm like pacing myself because he died a few years ago and he's not making any more movies. Right. You're done. So I don't want to watch them all. Right. I have like 10 of his movies that I haven't seen yet. Right. But I don't want to watch them yet. I'm like, you know, parceling them out. Right. That's a, that's a good strategy. Um, my pick is uh, a bit perverse. I, I will admit that up front. I consider myself a bit of a... Pervert? <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I like to watch my movies, you know, through blinds and you know hiding in bushes and stuff no uh i consider myself a bit of a like a pessimistic optimist where i feel like um if i think that it's going to be the worst case scenario then it's not going to be that worst case scenario and everything's going to be fine so tying with my vacation i we, think i think that philosophy explains the box office performance of the various transformers films that would that would do it absolutely <laughs> um Without going into too much detail, we've had a, we've had a couple of snags leading up to our vacation. Uh, my girlfriend um, sprained her ankle uh, a couple of days ago, and it's expected to be four to six weeks until she's all all better. And you know, what do you do when you they go to Paris? Don't you let, don't walk around. They don't let cripples into France. <laughs> um, she's making a speedy recovery, but uh, it 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 kind of you know was a. a, a inopportune time for that to happen so anyway i think if i pick a vacation movie about the worst possible vacation my vacation will not be bad so i'm actually picking a recent film uh, from last year uh jc chander's uh all is lost uh. <laughs> uh, which is a really good movie and i talked about it previously at the end of the year show um you know, it wasn't a movie I was expecting to like as much as I did um, by a long shot. Um, Robert Redford, as probably everybody knows, you know, he's he's the only star, the only person in the film, and he's he's on a boat. You know, he's got he's got a a boat that he sails across you know the ocean or whatever, and he wakes up at the beginning of the movie, and there's a hole in his boat, and basically the whole movie is him trying to repair the hole, save himself while trapped in the middle of the ocean, and it's very bleak and. Uh, I think it's a very effective movie, and I, I, I actually really responded to it. I, I really like that movie as well. It's, it's, a, it's a frustrating movie because, you know, everything he does ends up badly. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a very competent individual. One of the reasons I like it, and I think we talked about well, it. Well, I think he's, he's, it's questionable how competent he is. Compared to me, you put me in that boat in the middle of the ocean, I, I would probably slit my wrists within... Six and a half minutes. See, like it, it's it's tempting to read the film as like a like a Sisyphusian allegory about right. you know, like humanity just can't win. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it 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 seemed like it's a it's a movie that they should show everyone who buys a boat. Yes, there you go. It should be a training video right. <laughs> because because the the message I got from it is that he was not competent enough to be out in the middle of the ocean right. by himself. He was not well trained right. enough and if he had been trained better if he knew what he was doing then he would have been just fine which was my, my why my my letterbox review of it was a, a little factoid about captain Bly. well that's interesting <laughs> that you say that because i i responded to this movie um as more of a reaction to the very similar gravity from last year where um 
there seems to be incompetence throughout that movie where it's just like dumb luck that any that the movie progresses at all for Sandra Bullock like you know oh suddenly there's another space station just right on the other side of this you know horizon or and all of these things and watching this movie it was much more methodical and practical the way he went about dealing with solutions to his problems and stuff and sure if he was smarter he probably would have had a contingency plan for a better contingency plan for what ultimately ends up happening in this movie but well doesn't doesn't he like accidentally set his life raft on fire well okay. at one point <laughs> but that's at the that's at the end that's that's you know that's when you've had like the worst day at work you know your boss yelled at you or something or you know something and you come home you're stuck in bad traffic and then you walk in the door and you stub your toe that's the stubbing your toe moment you're like god damn it you know Will nothing go right with me? So I feel like that's the you know. I think the comparison with with gravity is 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 very apt, and and the things that that all is lost does that gravity does not are are reasons why I much prefer yeah all is lost. Like it's it's much, it's more realistic. It's less melodramatic, both in in its scenario and in its in its kind of plot contrivances, mm -hmm. but also in in its technique in the in the music. Yes, in, the music you know, goes, yes. certain framing, you know, choices that, that gravity takes at the end. And I don't like that in gravity. Like it really the score of gravity really bothered me, yes. just kinda amping up the, the tension because apparently it wasn't enough. No, being floating in space. Yeah, uh, that, that that Sandra Bullock is is lost in space with no idea of how to get back to Earth. Right. We have to give her like this, you know, ridiculous backstory too, so that we really care. Right, right. <laughs> By the way, and we have just, no, just we have no backstory to Robert Redford's right. character. Nothing. There's we know nothing. nothing about him. Yeah. He's he is a man on a boat, mm -hmm. and that's all we need. No. Like no. we shouldn't need more than that. As human beings, we shouldn't need more. Well, and personally, you know, maybe it's, maybe this says something about me. Um, I, when I get that stuff that's supposed to make me care about the person, I actively start to dislike that person, <laughs> you yeah. know, watching, watching Gravity as, like, as, as they teased out more of her, her back, but backstory, I was like, oh God, you're insufferable. <laughs> it's like the, the adventure, the adventure itself, the, yeah. you know, her, you know, being caught in this predicament, trying to find a way out of it and the suspense of whether or not she's actually going to survive. That apparently is not enough. We also need this this she kind of personal and, psychological yeah. redemption story tacked onto that, yeah. which you know it you know could kind of tie into what I was talking about in in the nineteen nineties with this the kind of uh, uh, embrace of of confessionality and personal narratives as, as trumping all other you know forms of discourse in in society and the fact that that gravity was vastly more successful. Then, then all was lost, both both critically and commercially. Mm -hmm. Points to the direction that the the culture has gone, and I think it's it's a, it's a shame. Like in a, in in a perfect world, Gravity would have been made in the same way that All Is Lost was. Right. Yeah. And I would have loved that Gravity. And and you know, just to close this out, I didn't hate Gravity at all. You know, I mean, I, I, I mean there are things I hated about it, but you know, as an experience, it was it was. It was kind of like we were talking about Avatar earlier, where I was like, wow, what a great spectacle, you know? And then I walked out of the movie theater and was like, okay. The, those know. elements, for me, turned Gravity from what would have been like an amazing film right. into just another Hollywood movie. Absolutely. Completely agree with you on that. Um, completely agree with you. Um, well, we really overrun the... Uh, 
the segment there, but that's okay. Well, she's kind of taking a vacation in space. That's yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, as, uh, to turn your phrase around, you know, I might be interested in watching a Lost in Space uh, feature film starring Sandra Bullock, like taking the like TV show. Like with Robbie the Robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they I made a Lost in Space movie, but she wasn't in it. Yeah. No. They did Land of the Lost, too, with Will Ferrell. You know, I'm kind of interested in that Land of the Lost with Will Ferrell because it was, like, the biggest bomb. Remember that? When that came out for, like, a week? Yeah. Disappeared? I'm kind of intrigued by that movie. I'm kind of curious about Year One. Yeah. Which I heard some, like, critical reappraisal <laughs> of when Harold Ramis died. Yeah. People were saying it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I want to see the ice, ice harvest. First. We should talk about uh, Fassbender. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's hear a clip. Uh of uh, Fassbender's Lola from 1981. Lola. Ich mag übrigens auch Bilder, aber nicht diese. Ich hatte Bilder, hätte ich gerne eine Klemmaschine. Sie werden sich lächerlich machen. Ich mich? Die Spielregeln werde ich lächerlich machen, das ganze verlogene System. Wenn eine Frau sich ihrem zukünftigen hingibt, kommt es ja nicht darauf an, ob sie sich vorher auch schon anderen hingegeben hat. Sondern ob die gezählt haben für sie. Darauf kommt es an. Gezählt hat keiner von denen. Aber gezahlt haben doch alle, oder? Dann kannst du mich ja heiraten. Später vielleicht. Später will ich nicht mehr, da heirate ich selber. Mariechen! Also ich weiß auch nicht, wo sie das her hat. Ich verspreche Ihnen, dass ich Sie in Zukunft nicht mehr erschrecken werde. Wissen Sie auch, wie Sie mir dabei helfen können? Nein. Indem Sie immer eine Minute früher da sind als ich. Damit alles wieder seinen geordneten Gang nimmt. Lola. Der Aufstieg eines Mädchens aus jenen Tagen, als die Trümmer der Vergangenheit beseitigt waren und die Zukunft gerade begonnen hatte. Mariechen, Mariechen, was soll da aus dir werden? Okay, so that was a clip from uh, Fassbinder's version of Lola. Um, and as we said at the beginning of the show, it kind of uses the similar, you know, uh, world to, to, you know, as, uh, as Demi's film and then as the Blue Angel to kind of go off on its own kind of tangent or whatever. Um, this one, there's Alola, who is also a singer in a cabaret and a, uh, high, well, I wouldn't say high class, a, a prostitute. Um, and it's in West, it takes place in West Germany um, as, as kind of uh, capitalism's kind of moving in and, and, and trying to, you know, build up the city. Um, is there a name to the city in this? I don't think uh, there is. Coburg. Coburg, okay. Um, and... The film starts with a new building commissioner coming to town, and um, the city is rife with corruption. Um, the mayor is in the back pocket of the uh, the biggest building contractor in town, who I personally think looks like Alfred Molina, but you think uh, otherwise. He's fat Christoph Waltz. <laughs> uh, as a new building commissioner comes into town, and they're trying to you know figure out, kind of feel him out to see whether he'll be you know amenable to their you know machinations or whatever. Um, He's going to play ball. He's going to play ball, as it were. Um, so the guy comes to town, and he's very um, efficient and straight-laced, and he comes in, and he, he um, you know, overhauls the office and gets rid of all the, the hidden porn and <laughs> stuff and, and takes the plants out of the room. Not, not so hidden porn. Not so hidden porn, no, is in the top drawer. Um, which, by the way, if you work in an office and, well, come on. 
don't don't do porn at work. That's just disgusting. Um, I work at the library. I see plenty of porn when I'm at work, and you know. I bet you do. I do. <laughs> Everybody's talking about him as he comes to town, um, including the Alfred Molina guy, and uh, he and he's mentioned while they're in the brothel, and uh, Lola um, kind of gets a chip on her shoulder because she hears that she's not the type of girl for him or, you know, he's too respectable and she wouldn't, you know, fall into his good graces or whatever. And she, she gets really offended by this and decides to win over, um, the guy. And, um, she does, she does a, a wonderful job. She doesn't tell him, you know, she, she plays respectable with him and he doesn't know about her actual life and stuff. Um, long story short, she ends up leaving him because of the world's colliding um, concern, and he gets really depressed until he, and then he finds out that, oh wait, that sweet little woman that I met and was falling in love with and tried to, you know, wed is actually a prostitute, and it kind of throws his whole world into, uh, shatter, it shatters his entire world, and he decides to go after the fat cat, um, as revenge. That's basically the setup, um, of the film, and um, it's from 1981, which, um, you know, you, looking at, I mean, France and Germany are, are two very distinct countries, um, and, and the filmmaking styles are very kind of distinct from one another, um, but also, you really feel the, I'm not, I don't want to compare these movies too much, but, gosh, the difference between 1961 and 1981, that is a huge gulf. Well, notably, they're both set in the mid nineteen fifties, right? I, I I was talking filmmaking style, but yes, right, you're yeah. right. You're right. They're they're, they're both post war. Um, and yeah, but their their versions of the post war world are are very different. Oh, wow, they're yeah, they're incredibly different. Um, one and it's it's interesting actually, and I thought about this, and it's actually in I think both of our letterbox reviews. Um, we talk about Jacques Demy, and we talk about how Lola is black and white, and it's so weird to see a Demy movie that's black and white because he's so good with color and all that stuff. And um, this movie is, the color is the dominant force throughout Lola. I mean, it's just on display from it's, the beginning. It's the most lurid technicolor. <laughs> like, I, uh, you've only seen one other Fassbender film. I've seen A Merchant of Four Seasons. Which, which you hated. I did not care for that movie. Uh, I've only seen one other Fassbender film, which is uh, uh, Fear Eats the Soul, which, which I thought was very good. I, I mean, that's the one that everybody says is the one, and I need to see it. Yeah. But I got burned by Merchant of Four Seasons. So, you know, I, I can't, you know, say if this is typical for Fassbender or not. I just I don't have right. enough information. But, um, you know, Fear Eats the Soul is, is similarly you know, luridly colored, like, you know, sickly pinks and greens mm -hmm. in the same way that there's like sickly pinks and blues here. Like it's not, it, the world doesn't look like somewhere I would ever want to be, Right. but it's so colorful. It's, it's like, it's, there's a lot of comparison between Fassbender and, and Douglas Sirk, who was a, a major influence on Fassbender. Um, and many of his films are, are kind of reflections of, of Cirque films, uh, Furious Soul as a, a version of all that heaven allows. Uh, but the, the aesthetic effect of, of the color in their films is, is completely the opposite. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with, with Demi. Demi seems much more like Cirque in, in creating Very these kind of colorful yeah. fantasy worlds. Uh, 
this is a, a fantasy world, but it's a it's a really icky fantasy. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, um, but you're right. It, it's it's grimy and it's and it's I mean and it and it plays to the you know the story, which is all about you know greasy, underhanded kind of you know the the people are 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 deliberately deglamorized. Like everyone looks kind of monstrous and and hideous. Even you know it, in another film, they might be you know handsome or pretty. You know, Fassbender like gets up close and and brings out all of their flaws. Mm-hmm. I find that a little unpleasant, <laughs> but I can see why. There's a point. You know, to you it. would you would do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in that sense, it's like the opposite of of Anukaimi or or Marlena Dietrich. Mm-hmm. Like this this Lola is not that you know that overpowering uh, uh, beauty. As those women were, yeah, it's yeah. She's not afraid, and the movie's not afraid to be ugly. Um, often, yeah, <laughs> you know, in in appearance, and also, and more so in in, in action, yeah. and and you know, she gets a lot more in this. She gets a lot of scenes of 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 um, frustration and anger, and you know, with her lot in life and and people's perception of her, and the fact that she's you know. Um, so easily taken with money and stuff. You know, she has she has these scenes in her uh, boudoir or whatever where she's um, just furious, and it's and it's not pretty. It's not a pretty scene, and and you don't get any of that in the um, the other version, the other uh, Lola. Yeah. So um, comparing this to the the Sternberg film, mm-hmm. uh, I find uh, Armin Mueller Stahl as the the uh, building commissioner mm-hmm. uh, to be much more the focus of this film and much more sympathetic a figure than the Emil Yanin's character. Uh, I am, the film almost at times seems much more interested in the ins and outs of, of building projects in, in post-war Germany than it does in any kind of sexual psychodrama with, with, you know, the, the prostitute. Like it, it could just as easily be called, you know, the Von Bohm. Yeah, she's off screen. There's a segment in this movie where, and I don't, you know, I wasn't clocking it, but um, there's a set, a, a solid section of this movie that she's not in um, for a, a consistent period of time, uh, where it's following him doing all of his, you know, the, you know, um, and yeah, she she leaves the screen. So it is an interesting. Um, it's interesting that the movie's called Lola, and it puts all of this stuff on her because really it's the power struggle between the building commissioner and the building uh, contractor. And even more of that, it's, it's about the commissioner. Like the well, contractor yeah, is, is this, yeah. is this devilish figure The the, to, you know, to put another Emiliani's character, he's like the, the devil kind of tempting Faust. Right. Uh, and that, and that kind of, of, of struggle is is much less central a part of the von Sternberg film, where where Emil Yanin says, from, soon as he sees Marlene Dietrich, which is like fifteen minutes into the movie, he's doomed right from the start. Right. And then the the whole movie is just this kind of uh, uh, watching his slide into degradation. Whereas this film is, we spend you know full hour, two thirds of the movie at least you know, building up his, his character and making him seem like a real person, making him seem like a good guy, well, a likable guy. He's, he's kind of, he's naive. He's kind of a doofus, 
but he's he's a nice guy. Right. Well, I want to ask you about that because because um, you're right. You you totally sympathize with him, and and his performance is very very good, and it it, it holds the movie together for me. Um, but you know, he he comes in and he's he's the movie kind of sets you up to think like the the townspeople um, that he's gonna. Um, come in and clean everything up and he's gonna he's gonna play by the rules and he's gonna you know make them you know have to to follow the letter of the law um and he doesn't and i find that very interesting because you know his his character isn't just pure goodness he's willing to as you say play ball with these guys right that's that's the the tragedy of the film is that is that this nice guy is uh he has his illusions shattered right by by fat christoph waltz who who, t- who takes him <laughs> who takes him to the brothel and shows him the seedy underbelly of the city that he thought he knew like all of of the major figures in the town spend their nights in in lola's brothel the right. mayor the you know his uh uh kind of lackey von, von bohm's uh uh Second, assistant yeah, yeah. Uh, is the drummer for the strip club band right like it's and how that guy when does that guy sleep that's my question he's a communist he doesn't need to sleep <laughs> uh, so it's not it's not just seeing this woman who he thought was you know this you know feminine ideal to right. get back to a, a Demi concept again uh, seeing her in this in this you know degraded lascivious form but it's seeing the whole community and seeing what the world is really like right. that just shatters him right and you know the 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 twist is how is he going to to deal with this world that's been blown up right and he does it by kind of retreating into this fantasy world. He he goes along with with Fat Christoph Waltz's scheme. He approves the you know the corrupt project that that they're working for, but he also marries Lola. Mm-hmm. Knowing that she's a whore and not really caring so much that on her wedding day she's going to go off and sleep with Fat Christoph Waltz. Right. He just ret- retreats into this delusional world where everything is okay. And that's really sad in a way that that Yanni's degradation in the Blue Angel is not sad. You just you don't. Well, it's more melodramatic and. Yeah, you feel that he kind of gets what he deserves right. for being such a pompous ass. Right. Um, unfortunately for me, um, there's there's a there's a nugget prior to um, him making that ultimate decision to to just like as you say retreat to this fantasy world and, and marry her and all that stuff where he and Eslin his the drummer slash assistant guy um, where he he's like forget this I'm gonna take these guys down and um, and I, then he doesn't and, and no I know I know I know um, and then that's the point of the movie I totally understand that um, but the movie at least for me it set up that thread um, but then it the way that it moved from that to the uh, to him, kind of the resignation that he had, didn't fully work for me. It's really abrupt. It's very abrupt. I wish that because he says to Eslin, uh, you know, at one point he's like, "Hey, you gonna you gonna work with me on this and, and bring these guys down?" And and Eslin says, "Sure." And then it's like the next scene, Eslin's like, "Well, you've gone too far. I'm gonna, you know, I I I'm not doing that." And for that kind of it it kind of. Um, made the payoff not as uh, satisfying to me. 
Yeah, it's it's I mean, I, the 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 kind of transition at the end because the movie had been very slow moving. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes its time developing yeah, all the characters and, and and building up the city, and then so much plot rushes by in the last you know fifteen minutes or so that you you, you kind of wish he had he had taken a little more time to you know, kind of spell out exactly what happens and why. Right. But I also kind of like that he doesn't, you know, feel the need to dwell on on the melodrama. On the melodrama, we don't need to see like this big speech where Alman Mueller Stahl, you know, gives up all of his ideals. You know. Oh sure, yeah, it yeah, just, yeah. It just it just happens, and I just wish there was a little bit more of the um, lighting the fire under um, the building planner guy and and all the because because the scene where they start to realize, oh wait, he's not playing ball with this anymore. Um, it's it's nice to see them their world shaken up for a minute, you know. Um, I wish yeah. that that went a little bit longer, but yeah, yeah, I, so, I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, one thing, one interesting, I think, uh, relation between this and and Demi's film is that uh, just by coincidence, Armin Mueller Stahl's housekeeper happens to be Lola's mother, right? Which he never figures out, and they never figure out until you know very late in the film. I think he, uh, they finally, you know, everyone is unmasked, and everyone knows who it's they not, are. It's not but until it's, like the wedding, I think. That yeah, she's, it's yeah. not even really dramatized, right. and so it, again, it, it's uh, like uh, like like the Demi film. It's it's kind of creating this insular world where everyone is related to everyone else, mm-hmm. um, but. With with to me that's that's a good thing, right? That's like this is this magical world where everything fits and everything has a purpose. In in Fassbender's Lola, it's like this kind of hellish thing where there's no escape. There's nobody outside the world. Is right. you're just kind of trapped in this, uh, you know, seedy German town. Yeah, it's very unpleasant. Who to me the most unpleasant character um, in this movie is uh, Schuchert's wife. Who we yeah. only get uh, like two scenes with, but there's a scene where she Schuchert is uh, is Fat Christoph Waltz. Yeah, Fat, yeah it, Alfred Molina. Um, when uh, von Volm has them over for dinner um, to his house, and and he's not married, um, and so he has uh, the mother of Lola um, cook the dinner as she's the housekeeper, and then eat the dinner with them or whatever. And that scene is just brutal because the wife of uh Schuchert, it just tears her apart and 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 you and but even before she opens her mouth she's just glaring at her with these like icy daggers for eyes and um my god that is just it's the most heartbreaking scene in the film it's very awful because we we've met the the housekeeper a couple of times and she's she seems like a perfectly nice lady very nice woman and uh you know to see her you know just treated like that yeah. at at a dinner table by somebody who we don't even we don't even know. We never is seen her before that scene. with her. Yeah, and she's just being so so condescending and and cruel to her is is really sad. Yeah, and and what's what's great about that scene is that um, since you don't know who she, I mean you don't you learn that she's the wife of of Shukert or whatever. But um, the scene following that is them leaving the dinner party and having an argument in the car. But then you see the power dynamic between the two of them where they have this like everybody else in the city does with Schuchert, this kind of understanding and, you know, that she, you know, she can be as rude as she wants or whatever. Um, she knows her 
quote-unquote place, you know, he's going to go out carousing the rest of the night or whatever, but she's allowed to, you know, speak her mind, you know, shit spout off about all this garbage or whatever. Um, so those two scenes back-to-back are very effective. Yeah. Um, and unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. And then he gets pulled over, you know, uh, for... He's not pulled over, but he's in a uh, in a line in this very scene um, where they're where they're checking for drunks or whatever on the road, and he just drives up. The cop sees him, recognizes him, says, "Hey, go have, you know, go on your way." And it's like, man, you know. So the, the movie's pretty explicit in its. Uh, yeah, Fat, Fat Christoph Waltz is is totally amoral. He's he's the devil. He's the the source of all corruption and evil in this town. But he at least he's not a classist. Yeah, it's true. He, he he says to his wife, he says, why'd you have to be so mean to that poor woman? Yeah. You know? Like, what's up with that? Yeah. Because and, and because he's, he's, he's not cruel. Right. He's just venal. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, scene was, that scene was rough. Yeah, so, so uh, like I said, you hated The Merchant of Four Seasons, and you've been very wary of Fassbender ever since then. I have. Did this, you know, inspire you to give him a, a, a third chance? Uh, yeah, I'll give him an... I'll watch more of his stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, I sided with this movie, um, and in the end, I had problems with it, um, and, you know, like we were just talking about, um, and, and, you know, once again... Having just watched the Demi Lola, I mean, it's no contest for me. Um, so, but I'm intrigued by Fassbinder because of you know, I think the German New Wave is 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 pretty interesting. Um, obviously, I've seen a zillion Herzog stuff and you know, Vin Benders and stuff. And Fassbinder's such, as you said, prolific, and there's just such a body of work there that I know has some treasure in it. Um, but his worldview from seeing both of these movies. It's not a it's it's not something that I would go to willingly, and that's a good thing. I mean, art should challenge you and stuff. Um, but I'm not. I don't even very depressing directors um, that I totally love. There's something exhilarating about their stuff that I not I haven't gotten yet with Fassbender. Um, yeah, I'm. I don't think he's for me, and I have that that same reaction to to most of the German new wave that I've seen. Like I'm I'm really hit or miss with Vim Benders. Like yeah, uh, Herzog I like, but Herzog would be the first to tell you that he's not one of them. Yeah, well, he's, he's Bavarian. He's filming. Bavarian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I haven't seen any uh, uh, Volker Schlundorf or Orlena Vertmuller. So I I just I get the feeling that that this generation of German filmmakers are not really on my aesthetic right. wavelength mm-hmm. uh, that just don't seem like the kind of movies that I like. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, like I said, I, it's it's something that I haven't delved too deep into. The the vendor stuff that I've seen, and it's not a lot, um, I have enjoyed. Um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, there's there's so many um, Fassbinder things, though, you know, like Berlin Alexanderplatz and... Uh, Curious the soul. I know I need to see that. You know. Yeah, world on the wire. I want to see. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know. I. I'm more inclined to watch more Fastbender now, after seeing Lola. Lola, I like more than Furious the Soul. Mm. Uh, I I really liked Lola. It it was, kind of a struggle to get through at times because because it was so ugly and I, I. The ugliness kind of creeps me out. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, 
you know, in, in it's a it's a really good movie. Well, I think I, you know, I think on a technical level, I think it's very accomplished, and he does some some really interesting things. He there are um, some shots that are duplicated later in the movie for different ends um, that are really cool. There's the, there's a scene when um, uh, Von Bohm comes to town the first time, and he's having a discussion at a table with uh, all the city people, um, mayors there and all that stuff. And it's a, it's a, it's a, the camera just goes in a circle around all of them, which you see a lot in like Tarantino movies when there's a lot of dialogue or something, it just kind of weaves around the table um, when he's in charge, um, when he's new in town. And then the, he does the exact same thing when uh, Von Bohm decides to scrap the plans and say, screw you guys. But what's, what's interesting is, is Fassbender does the same shot, but backwards. Uh, but it doesn't draw attention to itself, really. Sure. You know, it's just going in and, it, um, you know, there's stuff like that. That's m much flashier is uh, the lighting in uh, when Von Bowman and Lola have their first date. Uh, in the they're, car. They're sitting in the car and, and she is lit with a red light and he is lit with a blue light. And they have, like, their conversations, like a two-shot red, red and blue. And then when, when uh, he finally um, kind of gives in to being smitten with her, the camera swirls around and he's now in the red light along with her, mm -hmm. which is just really neat. <laughs> it's just that those, those reds and blues are so kind of gross. Yeah, yeah. And it just kind of makes his movies, I, I really, I like them, but they make my skin crawl. Yeah. And I don't like having my skin crawl. Yeah, that, that's a valid point. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's effective. I mean, it I think we agree that it's, a, it's very effective. He, he knows what he's doing. He's not a yeah. hack. Absolutely. Um, you know, I don't know if anybody would call him a hack. I, I don't think anyone would. <laughs> uh, well, you haven't talked to my girlfriend about Fassbender, so. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that's Lola. I would definitely um, recommend checking that out um, before Merchant of Four Seasons. Okay. So we're going to listen to some more kinks now, um, and this is probably the most appropriate one for this film, and it's uh, You Can't Win. Do what you can. All right, so that is our show for this week. Uh, like we said, we are recording this in advance because Mike's going on vacation. So if any uh, you know big dramatic news happens between now and when this show 
gets posted. Uh, don't blame us for not mentioning it. I'm really sad that insert blank name here died. Yes, <laughs> that was that was bad. <laughs> On the next episode of the show, which will be two weeks from when this show is posted, even though we're recording it in five days, they so don't need to it'll know be that. like three weeks from when we that. recorded it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about, uh, like we've uh, mentioned a couple of times, uh, Thomas Schatz's book, The Genius of the System, all about uh, filmmaking in the studio era in Hollywood from the 1920s through, I guess, whenever he stopped writing. I don't know, I'm only halfway through the book. We've made I'm it to like the eight. late 30s right now. <laughs> uh, and to go along with that, we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about why it, uh, it uh, is totally wrong about auteurism. And we're also going to talk about a couple of movies. Uh, the Barefoot Contessa, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, which is set during the studio era and stars Humphrey Bogart and Ava Gardner. And Hell's a Poppin', which is a studio film about studio films that totally blows up studio films. And I think it's uh, something I've talked about before on the show, on uh, uh, what show I'm watching, I'm not sure. But it is great, and I'm really excited because I think you're going to love it. I've been waiting to watch Hell's a Poppin' forever. So when you when we were discussing films for the show and you said, how about Hell's a Poppin', I just emphatically said, yes, let's do it. So. Yeah, and it, it you know it's it's similar to Never Give a Sucker an Even Break, which we talked about uh, a few episodes back. But it doesn't matter; they're they're both great. Yeah, um, I would like to say before we get to our you know closing stuff, um, the last several episodes there's been a lot of sound issues uh, because of various reasons. Uh, last week's was probably the worst because of that. Um, we had a. a, a fix in place and we were recording and it sounded great and we went with that and then um, it turned out that at the end of uh, the show that uh, there was a terrible static all over it so we had to use the backup recording which had me cutting out again. Uh, I promise that that will never happen again on this show. Um, Sean and I are in the same room for the first time in like six months um, which has been really nice um, and we, we won't put out inferior product uh, going forward because I, it's very frustrating and I, I don't feel good about doing it. So I apologize to anybody that's listened over the last couple of shows and had to suffer through uh, me cutting out or, or stuff like that. So, yeah. well, inferior sound-wise, we hope. Content-wise, we, we well, expect Well, content's going to be inferior no matter what as, you do. As always, reasonably competent. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I, you know... I, I just, you know, I, 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 in a strange way, I kind of take pride in what we're doing, and I, and I feel like the, we were dropping the ball with that. So, anyway, um, to rep stuff, if, uh, if you happen to be in Paris uh, at the end of the month, um, <laughs> the famous Cinematheque uh, there, um, speaking of auteurs, um, it, they're doing a um, Kinji Fukusaku uh, retrospective, and I haven't seen many of Fukusaku stuff, but it's what's playing while I'm going to be in Paris, and I'm really tempted to drag my girlfriend to uh, the afternoon show of Battle Royale, because I think watching Battle Royale um, in Paris would be a really fun experience, and that's playing on the 26th of uh, this month, July. I think the primary reason my wife won't go to Paris with me is because she's afraid that I will make her go to the Cinematheque Francaise every day. Yeah. Which I probably would. You probably would. Uh, if you are in the Seattle area in the next month and not going to Paris or <laughs> Berlin or, uh, was it, uh, Cooksoften? Cook's <laughs> uh, 
You can go to the Grand Illusion Cinema in the University District, the scenic University District, the Paris of Seattle. That's right. <laughs> uh, August 1st through August 6th, there is a Howard Hawks double feature of To Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep, which uh, really should speak for itself. You got your Lauren Bacall, you got your uh, Humphrey Bogart, you have your uh, Walter Brennan talking about bees, there's the Hoagie, Hoagie Carmichael, there's uh, Elisha Cook Jr., there's uh, that girl who plays the younger sister in The Big Sleep and is really slutty. Yeah, very, very slutty. Yeah. That's a... It's That's a, a good double feature. It's a great pair of movies, and they're both on 35mm. Bum, bum, bum. Hey, that's great. Yeah, so... What are the dates on that? Say August that? 1st through August 6th. So, you know... Come on out. Make your plans now. Yeah, definitely. Um, you can find us online, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the George Sanders Show.blogspot.com. Uh, keep an eye out for that uh, top 100 alternate list that we're, we're making. Um... And then you can find us on Twitter uh, at Geo Sanders Show and uh, email us at the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. Um, so we've been listening to the Kinks today, um, and the Kinks are just one of the most phenomenal bands, and, and um, I'm really glad that we got a chance to do that. Um, we're going to close out um, with a song that you probably were expecting, um, but not the way you expected it. So uh, here's Weird Al's version of Yoda. I met him in a swamp down in Dagobah Where it bubbles all the time like a giant carbonated soda S-O-D-A soda I saw the little wren sitting there on a log I asked him his name and in a raspy voice he said Yoda Y-O-D-A Yoda Remember if you kill them then you'll be 